Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, your guide to everything love, sex, intimacy, and relationships. Each week, your host, Zach Beach, interviews new experts on love, including couples therapists, relationship coaches, sex educators, and best-selling authors. Learn the best tips and cutting-edge wisdom to better love yourself, others, and the world. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, everyone. I am your host, Zach Beach, and I'm here with the incredible psychotherapist and author, Dr. Marnie Feuermann. Hello, Marnie, and welcome to the show. Hi, Zach. Thank you. Glad to be here. Today, we're going to be talking about changing unhealthy patterns. And for those that don't know, Dr. Marnie Feuermann is a licensed psychotherapist in private practice in South Florida. She is a nationally recognized relationship and marriage expert with specialized training in couples therapy. Dr. Marnie is a frequently quoted expert in the media and a content contributor. She has written for Huffington Post, VeryWell.com, Dr. Oz's Share Care, and The Gotham. Institute. In 2019, Dr. Marnie authored a self-help book for women who struggle with repeated unhealthy relationship patterns entitled Ghosted and Breadcrumbed. Stop falling for unavailable men and get smart about healthy relationships. And we are here to get smart about healthy relationships with Dr. Foreman. How are you today, Marnie? Good, doing great. Excited to talk about this, this topic. Yes. Thank you so much for coming on. It's such an important topic and I have so many questions. (laughs) And first, I'd love to hear your approach to couples therapy in general. You've been working as a couples therapist for some time now and even have a specialization in emotionally focused therapy or EFT, which is based on the work, I believe, of Dr. Sue Johnson. And I've always wondered about this approach and what EFT seeks to do. Yes, great question. So you're correct. EFT is based on the work of Dr. Sue Johnson, and it's based on or it's grounded in attachment theory. And so that suggests that attachments between people typically provide a safe haven, like a retreat from the world, a way to obtain comfort, security, buffering against stress. And so certainly the idea that we're better together and we do better when we are, we need people. We can't really, we don't really thrive in the world without, without others. And so because of that dependency, we want that to be really healthy. And so the focus is on creating a healthy attachment bond between the couple. And we also focus on um, what we call the relationship system. So this is just anytime you have more than one person, we know that a dynamic between them is created. So we could have one person triggered by something, but then that doesn't just exist in a vacuum, right? The partner could then be re-triggered and then that re-triggering triggers the partner back and so on and so forth. And so that can really become perpetual and often predictable. And so EFT aims to change those negative patterns of interaction and it helps people become more aware of their own needs as well as their partner's needs and how those two people can help each other 
through um, distress and of course meet each other's needs. And so when they have that kind of awareness, they're also better able to listen and discuss problems, you know, more from a place of empathy instead of say a place of defensiveness or anger. So in a nutshell, I would say we're restructuring uh, their bonds when, when the bond has been perhaps frayed or disconnected. So we're helping them reconnect and, um, and create a very secure and healthy bond. I love that idea. And I think it is really important for anybody in a relationship to know that they are basically co-creating this third entity, like what you might call a relationship system. And it's not just this you versus me, but it's this co-created relationship, co-created thing that is oftentimes the source of the dysfunction and not like one person's individual pattern. Yeah, 100%. And I think that also helps us as EFT therapists be more less pathologizing, you know, because we don't, we really don't want to find one or the other to blame. We know that's not really helpful, but we can, we can externalize the relationship interaction. Like you just said that, Hey, that's the enemy. This thing that comes up between you is the enemy, not either of you. And so it helps with that. So you're exactly correct. I'm curious if a couple ever comes in and to you as a therapist, it's incredibly obvious the negative relationship pattern that's happening, but it's really hard to get them to see it. I know one of the things that therapists are kind of educated in is that when people are told the work they necessarily need to do, they're often resistant and it's much more useful to help people come up with their own solutions to certain problems. But when a couple does come in, like, do you feel like you have this awareness of, of certain relationship dynamics that you are easily able to identify what's going on in the relationship? Yeah, I think we tend to see that the therapists usually will start seeing that or making sense of that pretty early on. And I would say most of the time, the couples don't see it as that pattern. They're not taking that aerial view like you're describing. So I think we kind of expect that. We know that it's going to take them a little while to start to see that. So it's not unusual not to get the buy-in for that right away. And so what we're also, in part, what we're doing is giving them an experience too during the session. Um, we're really slowing things down. If there's certain things we're hearing and listening for that we we know sound a little different or give us that new piece of data. We often have the couples turn and share and talk to each other. And so that's part of really actively restructuring the way they talk to each other. We try to get people in a more, you know, into a little bit more of the vulnerability into more of the, you know, where they can be empathic, but sometimes that really gets bypassed when they're home and they're fighting and, you know, things flare up really quick. So so I kind so it's kind of like we can in the office we we can really slow things down and take more charge of of what we want to focus on and then one of the things we start to see which I think is also a sign of progress is when the couple can start to take that other aerial view and go oh yes we co we do co-create this we do I do know how I trigger you and how you trigger me and and I understand you know when you shut down uh, this is what's going through your mind, you know, because the person's been able to talk a little more clearly about it. And so then you're you're shifting into 
progress and you're already starting to um, help them bond and connect differently. But at first, yes, you're you're correct. They really, they don't see it. They don't know. And, and I think that's okay. I think that's part of it. And that's why they're coming in for help. So you mentioned earlier on how EFT is based around developing the healthy attachment bond. And I'm curious how many and how what percentage of relationship problems do boil down to attachment history, do boil down to our upbringing, to the relationship that we have had with our primary caregivers. You even recently wrote a blog post entitled Five Ways Your Dad is Affecting Your Relationship with Men for Better or for Worse. (laughs) So (laughs) (laughs) before we get into the specifics, How often and how deeply does the role that our early parenting and attachment bonds play in our adult romantic relationships? Well, I don't have exact numbers, um, but I would say significantly. I would say a lot. Usually once we dig into this stuff with people, um, it all kind of comes to the surface. So um, certainly childhood, family of origin, what we call family of origin which is the family you were born into. So those experiences are really critical to our emotional development. That's sort of the first, uh, your first exposure, you know, as, as a baby coming out of the womb. I mean, that's, that's the environment you're put into. And so usually it's our parents or, you know, other caretakers. And so those are, those become the primary attachment figures and I, they play an important role in, how we come to see ourselves, other people, the world, because they really lay the foundation of what the world and our close relationships are going to look like. And so those experiences inform how we uh, view the world as either safe or dangerous, whether it's okay to take emotional risks, whether we think people are trustworthy or they're going to do harm to us. Do people come when you when you need help? Do they fail you? And also how if, we, if we're able to lean on people in times of um, when we need support. So we get a lot of that just input, 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 you know, for us as children. Um, so I think it is critical and often I'm able to, um, you know, through the through the work that I do, whether it's with an individual or or a couple, a lot of times we end up touching on some of this stuff or tracing these things back to some of these early experiences. And then, and then usually what you'll see is people kind of um, having like aha moments or they're, they're making sense of it. They're developing this coherent narrative of what might have impacted them growing up and what their choices are. We don't have to, um, you know, I don't think we, we have to continually do a ton of work just of all that stuff in the past, I think we have to make it relevant to what's happening now as well. And we kind of go back in time looking at that just as we need it, but you're constantly weaving it through the counseling for the most part. Yeah. It's those aha moments that are just really inspiring when, when we see them with the people that we work with, because oftentimes, as we've already mentioned, people aren't aware of the underlying dynamics at play. And I want to tie this into our topic for today and particularly your book. So the first few words are ghosted and breadcrumbed. Stop falling for unavailable men. And I want to tap into why people do tend to fall into the same negative relationships, negative relationship pattern again and again, because these people aren't going on their first date 
and then asking, are you emotionally unavailable? And then <laughs> they say, well, yes, I am. And they're like, perfect. This is just what I'm looking for. I, I think a lot of people, they have <laughs> right. the, the best of intentions, really sweet desires. They're looking for, you know, that loving, supportive partnership. But, you know, they find themselves, as you mentioned, falling again and again, in this case, for unavailable men. So... I think the question is, well, why does this happen? And somebody might even be thinking, why does this happen to me? Right, absolutely. I mean, it certainly can happen to anybody. So I know in, in the book, I focused more on um, on women. I just felt because of my own experiences, training, education, all that stuff. And also just what I know I had been through, I kind of wrote the book that I that I felt I needed, you know, growing up. But it could absolutely happen to anybody. And, you know, I, and I think it does go back a lot. I think the attachment science certainly gives us a lot of information. And of course, there's other things that happen to people. Now we have this term you may have heard of called ACEs. It's about childhood uh, adverse experiences. So, you know, divorce or, you know, maybe they were exposed to um, some bad, bad situations or trauma or you know, other, you know, other worse things, poverty, things like that. And so how those certainly um, impact how we, how we see the world and, and our choices. I mean, of course, I, you know, people don't write out where this tag on them that says I'm emotionally unavailable. I certainly wish people were more honest, you know, in, in of course, a tactful way. And I know people are unavailable for various reasons, which is something that I do talk quite a bit about in my book, because sometimes it can be very innocent. You just may be in a phase in your life that um, you're just not, you just don't want to focus on a relationship or some circumstance comes up suddenly. And then sometimes they're just not into you, but they're not the most effective communicator. And then once in a while, we get people who have more you know, sinister (laughs) intentions, certainly. And then sometimes people just don't even realize that. And so when the people, or they don't realize that they're, um, they're unavailable, I should say, I should clarify that. But um, like in this, in the, in terms of attachment, if you have an insecure attachment style, so you're very avoidant or you're fearful avoidant, um, but of course attachments on, you know, a continuum, but if you've got it, if you are really, really avoidant, then you have, you may have too much fear to actually take any risks with love. And so, like I talked about earlier, if the person has had really negative experience with these uh, early attachment figures, that's the framework that they're operating from. And again, sometimes it's, it's like what's in their, what they call, what we call the implicit memory or the subconscious. So it's something that they they're not totally aware of their behavior. They might even think to themselves, well, they're available because they're physically there. They're showing up. Yet we know that it's much more than that. They may not be really talking about who they are. They may not be vulnerable with another person. They may do some something that's like a very socially acceptable sort of way of operating. Maybe they're at work 18 hours a day. That kind of person's not available. They're not a bad person necessarily, but they may not be the best relationship choice if um, if they're not really going to show up both emotionally and physically for you. Yeah, I'm curious when you talk about, you know, not falling for the emotionally unavailable people again and again, 
I'm imagining two different strategies. One is I want to be more keen and more aware of the other person. Like I want to be able to identify positive qualities in a partner that are going to work for me. But another approach I'm imagining is I want to be more aware of my own patterns that are causing me to be attracted to these types of people. Which one would you kind of recommend? I think both are important. I think we've got to pay attention to the signals and the signs other people are giving us. Uh, and, and I think we have to know ourselves well. We have to know our we have to get to know our blind spots a little better. We have to get to know what might be running the show from behind the scenes that we're not so aware of. And also, if there's something where we are trying harder, like if somebody is giving us the signal they're not available, are you the kind of person who sees that as a challenge or that um, you have to show up differently? You have to change yourself. You have to do all of these things to get the person, uh, which, of course, isn't know, isn't really a good idea either. So I would say both in tandem are important, really knowing like why people do what they do and why they're behaving the way they are and really paying attention to it and not just being um, maybe a little bit blinded by chemistry and attraction, um, because I think that's the thing that trips us up quite a bit when it comes to love. I mean, we need that and it's great and it feels really good. But if somebody isn't the right person for you, no amount of chemistry and attraction is going to make that relationship successful necessarily if you don't have all the other ingredients as well. Let's go right into that. I want to repeat what you just said. If someone isn't the right person for you, no amount of chemistry, as you mentioned, will make the relationship work. So let's figure out that first half of the statement. How do we know and what are we looking for to find the right person for for me or for our listeners? Well, there has to be some initial attraction um, because I don't think anybody would link up right without some attraction <laughs> at first. <laughs> and of course you can't manufacture chemistry, right? So those two things I think are, are going to happen naturally and organically. But I think if people look at that as that's just the sort of initial piece and that that's all it is, that everything else they have to really just get curious about. You know, they have to really get to know someone. They have to hear, you know, their their values are in common. Um, they have common goals. They both want the same things at the same time. Again, it doesn't matter what that is necessarily. If one person's like, I just want to have a very casual, fun relationship, no, no strings attached. And the other person wants that too. You're not going to have an issue. But if you get one person wanting that, the other person looking for a serious longer term relationship, that's, that's just never going to work right away. The goals are not in alignment. And then I think as you go along, you're going to want to make sure that you feel like, um, you know, you both have each other's back. You can count on each other. Uh, there's, honesty, there's transparency, people are reliable, there's a sense of accountability for their behavior, the way they treat somebody. You want to feel certainly that you both have empathy going back and forth for each other. Um, that's one thing I hear a lot um, that can get certainly pretty bad for people when they don't feel like their partner can empathize with them at all. So that's that's certainly something that that is going to be really critical. And so um, 
And so I think like you, you had also touched on, I mean, it doesn't mean you're always going to agree on every little thing, but I, but when you argue or when you have a disagreement, you don't become enemies. You feel like, okay, we're, we still have each other here. We still keep the relationship as, uh, and protecting the relationship as number one. And that even if it gets a little dicey between us, we're coming through on the same team. I love all those. And I think it is really important. So I'll repeat just a few of them is that when you are looking for the right person, you are looking for similar values, common goals, wanting the same things at the same time. Maybe you're both looking for the life partner. Maybe you're both looking for casual hookup and, and then empathy and support, I feel like are huge, as you mentioned. And I want to go back a little bit to something you mentioned earlier, um, because you, most of your public work and, and the book is catered towards women, which you mentioned as a combination of one, your own experience and to also your training and then also your work experience with the world. And I am kind of curious, uh, do you find certain relationship issues? There is a large gender disparity between like, in this case, you're like, okay, women tend to be attracted to unavailable men. And so would you say that there are less men attracted to unavailable women and as like a man, what are some like more predominant, say, negative relationship patterns that you see? Yeah, sure. You know, I, I would say this is probably also, you know, it's certainly a bit of skewed data, right? Because look who's showing up to therapy more. It's generally more women that will come into a therapist's office. So it, it could be that it's about equal out there in the world. But what I was seeing coming in my office, definitely more women who would seem to choose um, more unavailable people. So, you know, and I think a a big part of it is that women tend to be more natural uh, caretakers, nurturers. They they seem to empathize a little more readily. Um, And I think a lot of that has to do with how they were raised to be very relational and put aside their needs more for the sake of a relationship. Um, But of course, I am by no means saying that's cut and dry, but I would say there are some gender differences at play. By the same token, I think we also do men a disservice by raising them to not be as in touch with their emotions or make it safe for them to have a full range of emotional expressiveness. You know, so if you think about those two sort of um, themes and uh, when they when they come together, it can create some pretty intense dynamics. And, and so I hope we can close the gender gap in, in these regards. Certainly, um, I think both men and women can be helped by this, um, by just kind of understanding these things and that we, you know, each gender can learn a bit, you know, from, e- from each other. Absolutely. But I think I just feel felt that I could do a better job with the book if it was just more focused. Um, And so the focus was women and heteronormative relationships. But one day I would love to expand those concepts to other audience because, because absolutely we can all have negative patterns. We could all be attracted to the wrong type of person or, um, or someone that isn't good for us. So I think there's, um, there's more to be done in, in this area. But yes, my, my book was a little more narrowly focused uh, on women for sure. 
Well, I, as a writer, I know, you know, when you put something out into the world, you have to have your target market. You have to have your reader right. in mind. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, and that was the other piece, the other little piece, because, because, um, like I said, women are showing up in the therapist's office more often. They're also the ones buying the self-help books <laughs> <laughs> as well. They're buying them a lot more, but, but again, you know, I think that's, um, the tide is starting to change. And I think that's wonderful because, um, you know, I would, I would love for men to also buy these books and show up to therapy more. And, and, you know, I, I think it's all great. So, um, we don't want any, we don't want any person feeling that they can't reach out for help or, or make changes, um, if they want to, for that matter. And it's interesting too, because even the, the therapist profession is predominantly women, yes. correct? Yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. Absolutely. So let's talk more about some of those unhealthy patterns that we want to look out for and how to change them. We've already talked about some of the positive things like look for similar values, common goals, empathy, support, feeling like you're on the same team and not like you're constantly fighting. And the topic for today is changing unhealthy patterns. So what are some of those unhealthy patterns we might observe in our relationship as a therapist? What are some unhealthy patterns that you observe in your clients in order to get to the root of the problem? Yeah, sure. So a, a very typical one is uh, when somebody has more of what we call an anxious or preoccupied attachment style. So they're looked at as more the pursuer, um, in the relationship. Maybe they're the ones that they're the ones that are always taking the pulse of the relationship. You know, are we close? Are we doing enough together? Are we spending enough time? Are we having enough sex? You know, they're the ones who are much more aware of, of all of that. And they're usually the ones to bring up, you know, Hey, we need to talk or <laughs> something like that. And when I have that person who is in a relationship with someone who has a much more of an avoidant style. Um, so they're the ones that tend to not want to rock the boat. They would never bring up an issue to talk about necessarily. Uh, they think no news is good news. They want to stay under the radar. That person might shut down or withdraw or, or just avoid in general as a coping strategy. And so sometimes when those two people get together, but they're on the more we'll say the, fur, the far end of the continuum for that particular attachment style, they can, they can get into what I had heard termed um, an anxious avoidant trap. So the anxious person gets more and more anxious and preoccupied. Um, and that actually triggers the avoidant person to be more avoidant and more withdrawn and more shut down. And so then the more the what that one shuts down, the more the other partner maybe escalates to try to be heard and try to be listened to. And so they're both complete, as you can see, like completely triggering each other. And so some people do that dance, but they don't, you know, they, they don't realize it at all. And so it's always kind of about that space between them and where the pursuer is chasing the, the one who's distancing and then that one distances, but sometimes they might take a step towards the pursuer, then the pursuer backs up. And so sometimes that can just go back and forth and back and forth, but they never really say, Hey, what are we doing here? Do you realize this is happening? You know, it's kind of like this seesaw. Um, and they never seem to navigate that emotional space between and sort of come, you know, come together 
uh, and figure this out. And so if that happens to an extreme extent, that that's really, really problematic because then nobody's feeling like they're getting their needs met at all. But of course, I mean, I don't, when we look at it, the good thing about, I think, attachment is that it's, we're not, again, we're not trying to pathologize these things. We're trying to say, here's how you cope with distress. Here's how you cope with the world or, um, or when your partner's upset or, or um, unhappy with you, or, you know, this is what you do. These are sort of your moves in the pattern. Um, but you don't have to do that anymore. We can figure out other ways so that, um, you know, you're, you're, you're navigating the space and the distance between you a little bit better. So you're not constantly pushing and poking each other and making each other feel worse. So that's like a very typical uh, pattern that be- that can become unhealthy. And then I would say another one that I tend to see a lot would be where one partner is, is over-functioning quite a bit for the other. So maybe they're in a relationship where their partner struggling with um, addiction or they can't seem to hold a job or they sit in front of video games 10 hours a day or where it just feels like the relational or emotional load is way out of balance in the relationship. There are some people use the term codependency for that. Um, I tend to try to look at a little more holistically and, and not just sort of you know, label it codependency because sometimes there's a lot of factors going on, but, but it would be as if like, there's just an extreme uh, lack of balance between whose needs are being met in the relationship. And one is probably completely depleted and the other one is, is coasting. So, um, you know, something along those lines is something that I would tend to see as well. So I feel like we could go, we could go into each pattern that you just mentioned. <laughs> yes. So Probably won't have time for them all, but let's talk about that first one, the anxious avoidant trap, because I do feel like it's very common how one person almost needs or wants a certain level of commitment and expressions of appreciation or connection in order to feel safe. And the other one is a little bit more avoidant and the idea of commitment can seem to be quite scary. And I almost want to connect this trap to a dynamic that will occur in every relationship around desire discrepancies. Every relationship has two different people. And if you compare two people, one of them is going to want more sex than the other one. One of them wants to communicate more than the other one. One of them wants alone time more than the other one. And how that, again, can turn into perhaps a negative pattern around, you know, criticism, like I need this, you aren't fulfilling my needs and the person gets flooded and perhaps withdraws. So how do we best manage function, go from unhealthy to healthy uh, in our relationships when one person basically wants something that is in direct conflict with what the other person wants? Yeah, it happens more frequently than than you realize. And sometimes I would see kind of like a dual pattern in a way, almost like a pattern superimposed on another pattern. So you could have a, like an emotional pursuer. In other words, someone in the relationships pursuing for emotional connection. And then the partner is more of an emotional withdrawer, but that emotional withdrawer will pursue for sex. And then that emotional pursuer withdraws sexually. So you almost have like a flip-flopped pattern that actually um, 
can happen as well. But in all the all of these cases, the target, I would say, is is certainly how you're, you know, how people are coping with it, how they can bring it to each other in a way that can be heard and taken in and responded to, because people end up having these very ineffective ways sometimes of both talking about their needs and um, responding to each other's needs. So um, a typical example might be a partner who criticizes um, and that's their way of communicating their distress. And instead of criticizing, which of course is going to end up unintentionally pushing the other person away, right? Because no one moves towards an angry, critical partner. We might help them talk a little more about what's underneath. So what's underneath the reactivity, what deeper, what we call primary or softer emotions are there. Um, You know, maybe they're showing up angry, but they haven't, they've never talked about, you know, the loneliness um, or their sadness or uh, fear that goes through their minds when their partner pulls away from them. So we're, we're really helping them with these very clear um, signals, communication, being able to talk about it and ultimately help them come, you know, resolve these issues together because they're doing that. And a lot of times people are able to figure it out once that happens. And then of course, there's are always, you know, there's always a handful of, of some that uh, just don't, you know, don't sort of move along that uh, into that area and, um, or they don't follow through or they just refuse, let's say to, to maybe meet their partner where they are. We know that th- there's those types of situations, but, but I would say they're more on the rare side, especially in those couples where they might've started out in a real, in a good place. The relationship started out in a very sort of traditional way. They fell in love. They made these very deliberate decisions about where they wanted the relationship to go. And then something changed. They, you know, had, had kids, let's say that's um, a very you know typical thing, unfortunately, where they have children and then suddenly the roles are different. There's a new schedule, there's babies screaming and crying you know, and, and they have trouble navigating it at that point. But there was a long time or there was enough time where they were totally meeting each other's needs and doing a pretty good job of it, of it. And then something changed. And so the couples that had some baseline let's say a, a relatively stable, healthy relationship or some minor issues. Those are the ones that usually certainly fare the best um, when they're trying to, let's say, get unstuck when, when they've kind of hit some of these, some of these different issues and problems between them. The ones that I worry about the most are, are the ones where they tell me um, problems existed when they were dating, before they committed, before they moved in, but they, they always, they kind of always had problems and then they got worse. I would say in general, those are going to be much, not impossible, but definitely tougher cases. <laughs> so. Yeah. I've heard that as well. A lot of people, they experience problems in the relationship and they think that moving on to the next step is going yes. to solve them. Oh, maybe once we get married, maybe once we have a kid, maybe once right. we, move, we move in together. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> Yeah, I would say nope, usually not. (laughs) (laughs) So I want to talk more about the kind of growth or perhaps healing that happens after we've cultivated a certain level of awareness. So for example, earlier we talked about the anxious avoidant trap, you talked about over-functioning, and 
once I, I've done a certain level of work to kind of understand where I'm at. So I took a survey and I'm like really anxiously attached and my partner took their survey and they are really avoidantly attached or I realize I have a temper that I, you know, took from a parent or one partner realizes that they are not in touch with their emotions as much as they could be. So then what? (laughs) What's the next step? Yeah, well, I think that's a great start to begin with because even if you're seeking out some resources around those types of things, it already you've already taken the first step. So you've already moved in, in the right direction to try to figure it out um, and to be a better partner and to also understand your partner better. So I think I think that's really good. And some people can get what they need perhaps from you know reading reading books and some of the things that are available as long as it's a legitimate source. So people do have to kind of be careful with the internet, kind of the wild west. You have to be careful what you're reading (laughs) out there. But I would say if you're, if you've got a book that's research-based, a lot of people could be helped with that alone. And then, and then I think that's exactly what therapy is designed for when that's not enough. So whether it's, if you think it's just your issue alone you can do, go to individual therapy if you if it's something that's really causing distress between you and a partner. That's um, great for you know couples therapy. People learn a lot about themselves and the relationship when they do couples therapy, uh, and particularly with you know EFT as I described. You're gonna really figure out what your patterns are and really get that self awareness, and then also hopefully learn ways to, um, to change it. Because I think that's, that's something that, um, I think you can get a certain amount of that from books and and podcasts too, for that matter, you know, just like this, you (laughs) Mm -hmm. know, like you can get some stuff from that, but, but sometimes people need more and they need an experience, um, that comes up in the, in like what we call a therapeutic relationship, to um, feel what it's like in their bones to perhaps respond differently and get in touch with their emotions differently and kind of do some of that rewiring uh, of their nervous system. And, and so that's exactly what therapy is for. And so I would highly recommend it to people if they feel like they're not getting where they need to be. It's just a great option. Right now we're focusing on cultivating an internal awareness of our own emotional dynamics and then kind of working on them to better our relationship. And I want to ask you more about another dynamic where we become aware of negative relationship patterns, mostly in the other person. And we ask ourselves like the million dollar question of, can I turn this relationship around? Can the toxicity be fixed? Or should I go, right? Should I stay or should I go? Because there are really big things, you know, like cheating and betrayal. But then there might be like other things we start to notice. Like, hmm, I feel like my boundary was crossed here. I feel like my friends use the word manipulation sometimes when they talk about my partner. Or I've noticed they lied about this small thing. Like, are they lying about bigger things? Even like this idea of stop attracting emotionally unavailable men, you know, you're like, hmm, maybe 
the married man I'm with right now isn't <laughs> actually going to leave their wife and kids for me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's kind of two parts. Can an unhealthy, toxic relationship turn around? And if we notice behaviors in our partner that are now giving us red flags, like how do we tease apart whether or not this is fixable, whether or not we should move on? Yeah, that's um, something a lot of people sometimes end up struggling with. And I would say there's no perfect, easy answer. But I, I'm always one for someone certainly feeling like they they're doing everything they can. So I think it's okay to put in that full blown effort and say, okay, this is this is not very healthy, and I want to see if we can get back on track. But I think people have to realize that it's going to probably take the partner as well to also, again, kind of like when I talk about the goal, that common goal. So a common goal would be, do we both think this, see this, want something different? Um, and our, and there's a willingness to actually work on it and have a deliberate, concentrated effort to do that. I say also, though, if there's one person in the relationship who thinks there's problems, then there's problems. <laughs> because I've had <laughs> period, that's it. Because I've had mm -hmm. sometimes where someone's like, you know, I'm, you know, they'll come into the office and they'll be like, I'm only here because she, she's telling me we have a problem. She's not happy. I'm happy. You know, she's saying this, that, and the other thing. And, but, but I'm, I'm actually good. I'm pretty good. I think the relationship's fine. I'm here for her. So, you know, right away I say, well, this is, this is a problem for you both um, because it's coming up between you. So, I like to look at it that way. If one of you isn't happy, then, you know, the, the relationship has to be at least explored and looked at and maybe dissected a little bit. So I think if you have a, a willing partner to do that, great. I think if you don't, again, I think that's another red flag though, too. If you, if your partner's like, nope, that's your problem, not mine, you do, you know, or, or I think we're fine. Um, or what? Ther therapist? Are you kidding? I would never go to a therapist. That's ridiculous. You know, so these are all things that you're going to want to evaluate um, and then and then make a decision about. And if you've done everything you can and um, nothing's changing, then you certainly are going to want to decide if, you know, maybe it's you know, maybe, maybe it's time to move on or whatever it is. And I know it's a whole, it's a whole different, I kind of put, put it in a category when somebody is, let's say married with children. Um, I would say that's a whole other thing too. There's a whole bunch of other layers of consideration there. So I know it's not, you know, as cut and dry as when you're, let's say dating and you're thinking about commitment and you're worried this person, you know, this may not be the right thing for you. I would say walking away from that is very different than walking away from your you know, marriage with kids. But, but I would say, you know, explore all of the options um, to get on track and, and, and know when it's just not going to happen and accept that as opposed to constantly fighting, fighting, fighting to try to change it if it's just not happening. Yeah. I think that's a beautiful almost test to bring into a relationship is in a non-judgmental, non-criticizing way, bring up a problem and tell your partner you want to work on it. And their response to you bringing that up, I feel like can either be a huge green or red flag. Absolutely. Yes, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> definitely. So I think if you have someone who says, 
you know, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. I mean, this relationship's important enough to me. And they could even say, I mean, a lot of times people are like, I don't really want to have to go to a therapist. Can we try this on our own? But usually what ends up happening is people find they can't do it on their own. Some people can, but that um, maybe the person's willing. If you said, okay, so we will do everything we can on our own for the next few months. And if it doesn't work, are you then willing? Are we, are, you know, can we go both see a therapist together? So um, most people will, a lot and not most, but I would say plenty of people would resist the idea um, of going to therapy. But I've also seen the situation uh, where people will reach out to a therapist when it's like too late because the partner has said, okay, I'm done. And then they say, I'll go to therapy. And then, and then it's really not the best sort of entryway into the therapy. So I really, you know, wish people would just say, okay, sooner rather than later, because I'd hate for it to be too late when people could perhaps have turned things around in the relationship and they just really didn't get the opportunity. Thank you so much, Dr. Foreman, for coming onto the show. And I do have to ask you the question I love to ask all of my guests, which is quite simply, what do you wish everyone knew about love? Uh, what, I, what I want everyone to know about love is that you don't have to be a victim of whatever early life experiences you've had, whether it's trauma or or negative experiences or patterns that you've held for a long time. I think we have a lot more information than we did a lot that we did long ago about love. In fact, there's lots of serious scientists <laughs> studying love right now. And I think that information can really help people along. And so they don't have to feel like they're stuck or that they can't make really significant changes when it comes to love if things are not going their way or the way that they wished. Absolutely. There's always hope and we can all find ourselves in a loving and supporting partnership. Thank you so much, Dr. Mari Foreman, for coming on to the show. Your book is Ghosted and Breadcrumb, Stop Falling for Unavailable Men and Get Smart About Healthy Relationships. And you also have your practice. So for our listeners who want to learn more about you, how can they find you? Sure. They can go to drmarnieonline.com. So that's D-R-M-A-R-N-I-O-N-L-I-N-E.com. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Marnie, for coming on to the show. And thank you, listeners, for listening to the show. We hope you gain some powerful tools to cultivate awareness of unhealthy patterns in your relationship, including the anxious avoidant trap. And also our focus on finding the right person for you beyond simple chemistry, but looking for those shared values, shared goals, looking for empathy and support. And a good way to test if you're in a healthy relationship is to approach a problem with your partner. And if it's something they will work on with you, that is a wonderful sign. If you want to learn more about me, you can head to zachbeach.com and learn more about the show at theheartcenter.com. Thanks again, Dr. Foyerman. Oh, thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thanks again for listening to the Learn to Love podcast. To learn more about the show and your host, head over to ZachBeach.com or TheHeartCenter.com. You can also follow Zach on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 